Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just tuning in for the first time, find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Today... Uh, we got some follow-up from last week's episode, uh, our review of X-Men Apocalypse that we're going to be discussing. Uh, and in the After Dark, Devinder Hardware is going to get a chance to offer his thoughts on X-Men Apocalypse. He wasn't with us last week because uh, I think you're a Computex in Taiwan, right, Devinder? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I listened to your review while I was there. Uh, it was very sad not to be here, but I also spent a lot of time uh, shouting at my phone. And Taiwanese <laughs> people all around me were very confused. So I see. Thanks a lot. Hopefully <laughs> shouting in agreement. Sure, um, sure. Anyway, uh, today we're going dis- to discuss what we've been watching as well, and then uh, offer a brief update to our summer movie wager. I just want to talk to you guys about that real quick uh, before getting into our review of Pop Star Never Stop, Never Stopping. So we're going to do an in-depth review of Pop Star Never Stop, Never Stopping. Uh, so before we get into any of that, though, let's talk about follow-up from last week. In last week's episode... I talked a little bit about seeing X-Men Apocalypse and how uh, there were messages uh, you know, before and after the film, before the film thanking us for seeing the movie, and after the film talking about how many man-hours had gone into making the film. And some people rightly pointed out that the, the latter message is simply a kind of anti-piracy thing of saying, hey, mm-hmm. uh, just so you know, a lot of people worked on this, don't steal from them. Now um, it's like positive guilt now instead of uh, yeah <laughs> instead Don't of you this. couldn't download you wouldn't download a car instead of doing <laughs> that. Thanks for pointing that out, but I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's true of the you know thanks for coming out to the theater message that we got before. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that's still kind of a just like a feel good for making you go to the theater message versus an anti-piracy message. Um, did you get any such message? I think you watched this film in Taiwan, right, Devendra? I did. Uh, I did not see the pre-showing, like, welcome, thank you for watching this, but uh, in the credits I did see the, uh, you know, this movie employed this many people thing. Gotcha. Um, well, in any case, uh, thanks for that correction. Speaking of corrections, I, I committed another cardinal sin on last week's episode of <laughs> Uh, the podcast, which was confusing the terms special effects and visual effects. Uh, this is a dead giveaway for someone who has no idea what the hell they're talking about. But basically, uh, special effects in general, there are some exceptions, but in general, refers to effects done on set. So uh, like a squib going off and some guy's head getting caved in or whatever. Anything you do on set that you use you know, tubing or blood or whatever, masks, uh, that's special effects. Visual effects in general, refers to post-production, anything that happens after the movie's already shot and in the can. Um, So I kept talking about special effects last week. What I really meant to say was visual effects. Uh, Thank you for the correction there. You know, Dave, after producing such a special effects-heavy movie as a primary instinct, uh, (laughs) you know, I I, I think you would know the difference. It's bizarre (laughs) that I don't have that ingrained into my head yet. I agree, Devendra. Uh, I thought that movie was all visual effects. Yeah. How did you get Tobolowsky so young? (laughs) <laughs> uh, but it is true. Uh, I, I should know better, and so apologies for that. It's kind of like CGI and CG. Yes. Apparently no one in the industry refers to it as CGI anymore. It's just CG yep. now. So uh, dead giveaway that you are an outsider if you call it CGI or if you call Five it – Five years, it'll just be C. <laughs> yeah, in, indeed. <laughs> and uh, if you call it special effects instead of visual effects. So thanks for the correction. And finally, uh, we talked about Quicksilver uh, briefly in last week's episode – and Jeff, you were saying how 
you thought it was unrealistic that uh, in, in the movie, uh, X-Men Apocalypse, I'm not going to give away too much, but I will say that Quicksilver throws people. Like he grabs people and just tosses them. Mm-hmm. And you I don't were saying like how would... second timing. Yeah. yeah. And, I wouldn't and... use the word unrealistic because clearly <laughs> nothing in that movie or that universe is meant to be realistic. I just meant I, – I think I was pointing out that it didn't seem congruous with his his – a special right. human power set. Right. Well, right. it, it seems like out, a step too far. I, I, well, it turns out that uh, we learned this in high school: force equals mass times velocity. So theoretically, if you're moving quickly enough, uh, you should be able to, you know, throw objects of that mass around. Uh, however, however, big however, <laughs> Quicksilver is unrealistic in many other more important ways, guys. How so? <laughs> uh, for example, if you were to actually run that fast. Uh, your body made out of flesh would instantly deteriorate and uh, become this, you know, goo. Because well, I like, would, I would buy that he's immune to that. Yes, what with it being yes. his power, it's the picking up other people and bringing yeah. them. With well, yeah, you they, they would also be severely injured as well. So when he holds their head and says, "Hey, this is so you don't get whiplash," whiplash is not the only thing that he would need to be concerned about. It's whether they would just survive the trip. The other thing is, uh, and I did some reading about this that. Uh, he would literally not be able to consume enough air to survive just because, like, at the speed that which he moves is, like, to be able to breathe in the air molecules, like, they wouldn't be able to move that fast. So there's many ways in which uh, Quicksilver... Maybe he's holding under- his breath in the whole time. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Maybe I, he's holding I feel his like, breath. I feel like anything that that is... That causes Quicksilver t- to not be able to move that fast is just explained away by... Quicksilver's power is that he can move that fast, right? Whatever it takes yes. for him to do, move that fast, that's his power. It's when he manipulates other people. That oh, I see. That is, that is the line you cannot cross, Jeff. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I think if, if you'd say his superpowers move super fast, I'm like, okay, I'm on yeah. board. Whatever, or, whatever. Or even transport people super fast when he's holding them. But if he's throwing them, so right. he, they're like outside of the realm and protection of his powers, uh, what, what, what's happening there? That doesn't yeah. seem right. All right. Well, I, I guess I, you and I, are, you guys and me, are just bothered by different things. Uh, <laughs> but I am bothered by the idea that air molecules can't possibly move fast enough to accommodate him breathing enough oxygen to survive. Who's to say he's breathing at that point? Like, who's exactly. to say he's, exactly. he even needs to breathe when he's running that fast? Pretty sure you holding, see holding his breath is a great limitation for that power too. Mm, yeah. yeah. Pretty yeah. sure you see him breathing, but okay, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe I'm not correct on that. Um, so anyway. <laughs> Quicksilver, pretty interesting power set, and whether or not it applies to others or how easily it transfers to others, that's in the eye of the beholder. But uh, still, think he's a really fun character. I mean, and I think if if you're going to go down the the David Chen <laughs> rabbit hole of of what's problem, oh, now it's a David Chen rabbit hole, not <laughs> well, Jeff Kanata who first brought this it's up. It's a separate rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah, your your rabbit hole is just you know, uh, <laughs> what are the car? What's the cars world mean to to, to, to the, you know? That's the the problematic <laughs> what's the deal with the car world. Yeah, Come the on. problematic <laughs> ramifications of things is, is your rabbit hole, and I would say in that in that from that context. Uh, I would say Mystique is probably much more disturbing on a number of levels. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of disturbing things, including the way aging works in the X Men universe. Oh yeah, well, let's let's talk all. about that later as well. But I did want to mention one other thing about Quicksilver, which is I read a really cool fan theory on Reddit about why it is in uh, X Men Apocalypse Quicksilver is still living in his mom's basement and doesn't have a job, and it's because. Uh, he perceives time in such a different way than most people that any activity at all in our universe 
uh, he would probably perceive to be excruciatingly slow. Uh, right. You know, and That's he can't the excuse sh- I use too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like he can't show off his powers because otherwise people would think he's a mutant and a freak. And so, uh, if he can't show off his powers, like just the the most mundane of activities, which to us might be incredibly enjoyable, for him must seem to take forever. So that's probably why he can't hold down a steady he's job. He's like Sonic he the Hedgehog. Yeah, he's he, always tapping his, his feet. Yeah, he just gets bored too easily. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting... <laughs> he's actually a metaphor for the ADD generation. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, anyway, so uh, we are going to hear more thoughts about X-Men Apocalypse in the After Dark today. But in the meantime, let's get into what we've been watching. Jeff Kanata, go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I... Uh... For some reason, when I got the press screening for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, I thought, I, I got to move my schedule around and get to that. I got to go see that, uh, despite the fact that we weren't actually reviewing it for the show. So I didn't have any uh, you know, <laughs> professional to see excuse. It. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we, we did review the first one, you and I, Dave, and, and Devendra took a, took a pass on that one. He was like, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not staying around for this. Yeah, it's a tap Turtle. out, guys. Yeah. 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 Uh, and we, we watched that first one. It was not good. Uh, <laughs> but yet I did not learn my lesson. And I, I still, you know, I harbor a little bit of TMNT love. Uh, if, if you guys have ever seen the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles documentary that's out there, I make an appearance as a special uh, mm, expert, really? expert. Yeah, yeah. I'm in what that, is the uh, name of that documentary? I can't remember. It something better like have Turtle a great Power. Pun. Come on. I think it's Turtle Power or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, I can't remember, um, but you can find it places. The whole uh, totally rad show crew got interviewed for that. It okay. was fun. We went. We met um, uh, Kevin Eastman at, at his house. It was a pretty neat experience. I think you're referring to Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Is that That's right? the one. Yeah, a look under yeah. the shell. There you go. Which sounds vaguely erotic. Anyway, continue, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> if you're into reptiles, I guess. Yeah, well, apparently th- there is some you know, interspecies stuff going on in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1. Uh, I wonder yeah. if that continued in the sequel. Well, there's definitely allusions to that in the sequel. It's, it's uh, you know, halfway – well, not even halfway. A little ways into that movie, I was like, I made a terrible mistake. I could be doing so many other things with my life. These two hours, I'll never get back. You know, it's full of bombast. It's full of some really slick 3D animation. Uh, the camera's always moving. It's very kinetic. There's a lot of turtle activity. There's, you know, some fun throwbacks in this new one to the cartoons that we've all enjoyed when we were kids. Um, I'm assuming you guys enjoyed as well. I did. Yeah. You know, we get we get Krang in this one, and it's fun to see Krang. And we get Bebop and Rocksteady, and it's fun to see Bebop and Rocksteady. <laughs> But uh, it's not good, and, and it, it, I think chief, the chief problem of, of both of these movies is that I find the central personalities of these turtles to be really abrasive and annoying. Mm-hmm. And I know they're supposed to be teenagers. It's right there in the name. Yeah, they, they were always annoying, but maybe it's a new, new type of annoying for a new generation. Yeah, I think that's the case. I, I find them – like it's, it's strange how differentiated they have made them and, and <laughs> you know uh, – like Raph, Raph, by the way, not Raphael, Raph. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. He's just he's just like a dick. He's just a, a <laughs> muscle-bound 
dick that just wants he to was fight. always he's a like, dick though and then everybody loved him for some reason i guess but yeah he was yeah. the jerk everybody he's loved. even more uh, obstreperous in this new series of films though, I think, uh, than before I, I yeah he, he has like rage issues and it's all it almost <laughs> kind of feels like he's roided out because he's just like oh, i want to hit everything all the time um and it's a little that's a little disturbing but you know it, it occurred to me while watching this that and i i understand that the same logic can be applied to my beloved marvel cinematic universe so i'm not I'm not oblivious to my central hypocrisy here, but uh, it, it occurred to me that, you know, there's so many things <laughs> that were made simply because you could draw them. Like, <laughs> it, it's easy to draw them. And so in a very inexpensive medium that you could scrape a little bit of profit margin from, i.e., print media, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a certain time period when you could draw something. It was really inex- inexpensive. Just a couple it, of guys could make a thing and put it out. It was an underground comic first, right? So yeah, it, it was wasn't it, a right. big it was thing. Black and white underground thing. Yeah, and, and it's just like your imagination allowed you to create something that's weird, but because you drew it, it could be anything. And now we spend hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> to create a – Different kind of animation. Like that thing was drawn and then it was animated and it's still pretty cheap to animate it on a certain level. But now we're, we're – the movie has very little actual live action photography in it. I mean it is large stretches of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie, is just animation. And it's animation <laughs> in a computer but it's on an order of magnitude more expensive and more difficult to pull off and kind of like – for what? I mean, do we are we accomplishing anything more by making a photorealistic CG Krang brain face than it was when it was just like a purple or a pink squiggle? I don't know. And I understand that there's a lot of things that I love because they've become live action. So I understand my central hypocrisy here. But it, it just – it hit home more in this movie because it's like you are really just creating an animated series – I don't know what we're getting out of just seeing right, it right. at this level and this scale with this amount of cost. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people share that opinion, Jeff, because this movie did not do very well in its opening weekend at the box office. It made about half of what the original uh, film made. So I think there's a lot of uh, people who are uh, getting worn out of this uh, of this craze, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, before I ask you what else you've been watching, Jeff, i got to make a correction before this Spirals even more out of control. Uh, earlier on in this podcast, I think I said force equals mass times velocity. Ooh. That is wrong. Um, it is force equals Ma. mass times acceleration. So, Ma, Dave. Did, did you remember this? Come uh, on. Yes, I, I did remember it. That's why I brought it up, and I simply misspoke earlier in this episode. Uh-huh. So, Dave, the way that. you handle that in the future is you go, it was a test. And Devendra and Jeff failed it. Yeah, that's no right. One corrected me. That's exactly correct. Thank you, yeah, Jeff. It's it's okay. I just wasn't paying attention to Dave. That's just <laughs> happened usual, with yeah, alarming yeah. frequency on this podcast. <laughs> Jeff Canato, what else have you been watching this week? Did you guys ever get around to watching Horace and Pete? Uh, yeah, I, I saw a couple episodes. I watched episode one and didn't watch any of the others because episode one was so depressing. But I heard that it got really good and had an amazing ending. And I'm very curious about how it all wrapped up. I don't want you to spoil it. But yeah, how'd you enjoy it, Jeff? I finally finished the series. I like you. I watched the first one and then was like, whoa, that took a lot out of me. Yeah, seriously. And, it, and, it, and the first one almost felt like a film. You know, it has an intermission. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Like an actual title card comes up that says intermission, and it feels like this full experience. Well, it felt and more did, like a play, right? Like yeah, definitely. Like the a way play, it was yeah. filmed, the, the long continuous shots, and the fact that there's an intermission. Uh, yeah, and, multi-camera. and it's on a three quarter stage. Yeah. yeah, it's very, very much a play. Uh, but it also, I, I bring that up and to say that it felt like a complete experience. Like I didn't need more episodes of this. But I am so glad that I went back and finished out the series. I. You know, I'm given to hyperbole, but I, I think this is one of the greatest accomplishments anyone has ever put to film. It is a work of art on a level that no one does. This, people don't do this. It is unbelievable uh, how raw and honest and mm-hmm. different than anything else you will see in any medium, anywhere. I mean, yes, theater is the closest thing to it, but even the theater can't can't do what this does because it's not theater, right? Because it actually gets to borrow from the film medium as well and put you up close to these characters when it needs to. It's this hybrid thing that gets to get the best parts of a lot of things and be rough around the edges. And it's no one makes this. Guys, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. Yeah, they yeah. need to invent new awards for this. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm serious. Like the, the awards that are out aren't sufficient to give the, the level of acting that happens. Episode three is basically a two-hander with Louis C.K. and Laurie Metcalf. Laurie Metcalf only appears in that one episode. It, it, she, it, she basically gives a 48, 50-minute long monologue that is... It floored me. I mean, what she does with it and the journey that you go on with this conversation she's having with Horace in the in the show. But she's telling him this story and how it is revealed their relationship, what is happening, and her acting. Like, you need to just give her every award there is. I, I, guys, you have to at least watch episode three. It is... One of the most amazing things I've ever seen put on film, like what she does and what is asked of her, it's staggering, staggering. And then that's not even my favorite episode of the series, guys. <laughs> episode six and episode seven. Okay, first of all, you know, there are, there are a few shows, and, and I know I'm a sappy guy, but there are a few shows that I can't watch – a single episode without crying. Uh, those shows are usually written by Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> They're like the West Wing and Newsroom. Uh, and and I, I cry in those shows not because it's sad, but because of how truthful things feel and how, you know, like brave and honest the characters are. It affects me on a, on a very deep level and I get moved. This show is that. I did not watch a single episode of this show without weeping. I mean, hard. And it is devastating. It is sad so often. But this show is like getting a direct shot in your veins of honesty. It's like hooking up to an IV of honest. And I've never seen anybody do this on, in any medium. It is so brutally true. Mm-hmm. And, and like the, the things that you see – and. There, you know, it takes place in a bar, right? And the family dynamic of the bar unravels over a number of episodes, and it's kind of like if, if you 
started just explaining it, it would seem preposterous, but kind of makes sense over the course of things. And that family's dynamic is really fascinating and heartbreaking and rough to watch and amazing. But then you have these like these one-off characters because it's a bar. He can just bring a couple of characters in that have this conversation that we just kind of glide over to and, and over here. And these one-off characters so often are the most heartbreaking, incredible moments. And he's able to deal with such a wide variety of subjects, mental illness and alcoholism and politics. And uh, there's an amazing transgender episode that I keep bringing up to people. No one has seen this show. Like you can't talk about the show with anyone and it's a travesty Mm -hmm. because this is a show that I'm going to reference in my head for the rest of my life. There are concepts and the way he articulates some of these ideas that I'm constantly thinking about. And guys, you have to have to watch this. Like if I win the, if I win the, um, the, the summer movie wager. This is what I'm going to make people watch. You have to watch it. All right. Yep. Uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I've heard great things about it, mm-hmm. and Louis C.K. said it's one of the the favorite things he's ever, he's ever made. Yeah. Although uh, it's like he's severely in debt because of it, and that's uh, why yeah. something like this is hard to. Yeah, to I, I heard a later uh, interview where he basically said by late this summer he'll probably be break even, and he'll be he's going to be okay, guys. He's going to be. I'm okay. sure. I'm sure he'll he's be okay, but right still. Now. That's the sort of thing, like even like even artists who have a lot more money than Louis C.K. you know aren't willing to put up. Yeah, and uh, he did it, and he wanted to do it in a way where people didn't know that it existed. Like he he was yeah. so interested in how uh, it would roll out into the world without any fanfare uh, <laughs> that the side effect of that is you know Jeff that not very many people know about yeah. it. And also uh, accessing it is, yeah, harder. It, it's not that hard, but it's like it, when you're used to Netflix and all those, all these services, you hit a button and it appears in front of you. The idea of like going to a site and downloading something is, is just so arcane. When you say it's hard to watch, do you mean like it's emotionally difficult you, you, or just yeah, like you need, you the need number to take, of, no, no, I think I was, Jeff uh, means it's emotionally difficult. I mean, I, I think <laughs> you, the reason you, so many people haven't done it is because they're lazy. And it's yeah. really hard to convince people to do that. Yeah, it's not uh, – you can't go to iTunes and get it. You know, you got to yeah. go to his site and then sign up and then download a thing. Um, but all right, Jeff, thanks for the recommendation. Uh, I will try and get back into it. Yeah, and, and I, I would like to add real quick that I watched this uh, on a plane flight. I, I, like, oh. I like marathoned through it on a plane flight, and it was hard. I was just sitting there like weeping in my seat. But I also kind of cherish – that method of watching it because I was watching it with earphones in my own little world. And this is a mm-hmm. show that like I kind of feel deserves to be watched by yourself. It is it hard feel- to watch with other people. I, yeah. I'll tell you that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of about loneliness and it, it's very personal and I kind of recommend watching it just by yourself if you can. Mm-hmm. It's right. like a book sort of. Yeah. Yeah. What else have you been watching, Jeff Kanata? Uh, real quick, because um, I know I, I spoke so highly of Bloodline when it was out. Uh, Bloodline season two, I know, has hit Netflix, and uh, I'm I think four episodes in, and man, it it's still just as awesome. I will obviously talk more about it once I finish the series, uh, the second series. But um, it, it's exactly what you want from a show that ended like the first one ended and was what the first one was, which is it picks up right there and. Nothing is forgotten and everything is a direct – everything that ha- is happening in season two is a direct result of what happened in season one, which is exactly what you want. So uh, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. back in loving it. It's still so great. 
It's right. it's still very much a slow burn. I'll tell you guys. Yeah, that. the ray burns are still slow. Very burn. very mm-hmm. much a slow burn. Yeah. All right. That's what Jeff's been watching. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two, Horace and Pete, and Bloodline season two. Uh, I've been watching a few things this week. I went to the Seattle International Film Festival, which is still going on, guys. And it's going on for another, I think, one to two weeks. It's it never it ends. It lasts for three and a half weeks. Uh, and it is incredibly daunting how long this festival is. And it's, uh, I find it to be actually quite challenging to find you know, the real gems that are, are going to be worth making it out to the theater for. There's a lot of good films out there, a lot of films that will show you stuff you haven't seen before. But... I already have to watch films for the Flash Filmcast, and so I uh, have to pick and choose. And uh, I saw a few that I w- wanted to mention real quick. One of them was called Tower, which is a documentary about a shooting that happened in 1966 uh, at the University of Texas Observatory Tower. Basically, this guy just started opening fire on uh, students and staff and whoever uh, with a bunch of weapons that he had at the top of this observatory tower. It's an incredibly disturbing crime, and you know, even getting to the theater, it's just like not necessarily something you want to do. You know what I mean? Uh, going to watch a movie about a bunch of kids getting killed—it uh, wasn't something that I was that you know I had heard vaguely of this incident, but it wasn't like I was clamoring to find out more. But I did read that it won the grand jury prize and the audience award at South by Southwest, and the uh, way that. The director brought the story to life. seemed pretty interesting, so I checked it out, and uh, I'm really glad I did because it's an extraordinary documentary uh, and it uses pretty innovative techniques. What this guy did was he went and interviewed a bunch of survivors from the attack and then reenacted those interviews like in the words of the survivors using younger actors you know, to, to, as though the event had just happened that day. Boy, that sounds like it could be really bad. It does sound like it could be really bad, but then he rotoscoped the entire thing. So, uh-huh. or not the entire thing. He combined rotoscopic animation with archival footage, uh, and so you're not actually seeing the younger actors. You're seeing uh, a rotoscoped version of them. So it kind of gives this thing a really abstract, surreal feeling, uh, and. Uh, there's no voiceover narration from the director or anything. It's just the entire story in these people's words. Uh, and I found it to be a beautiful film, incredibly effective. And you hear a lot about uh, the common acts of heroism that took place that day. People who, who went out and saved people just lying there in the brutally hot sun who had gotten shot but weren't dead yet. And then you hear regret from people who... You know, wish they had done more to save more people, and it's it's an incredibly powerful film. And I stayed for the Q and A with the director, and one of the interesting parts about it was uh, about the film is that you don't find out that much about the killer, and that's because uh, if you Google this event, you find you know dozens, if not hundreds, of articles. Uh, about the killer. And that's true of many mass casualty attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Whenever there's a shooting. It's always about what was the killer thinking? What was his mindset? What was uh, what was he reading? What video games was he playing the day before the killing? And you rarely hear that much about the victims. And this movie is all about the victims. You know, it's just all about the things they did, the things they felt, all those little stories. Um, and uh, I found it a refreshing change. You know, because that's really who we should be celebrating and sure. who we should be obsessing over is those people who were heroes. Um, and who survived unspeakable horror and not this, you know, really twisted and uh, unfortunate 
human being who decided to inflict all this horror on these people. So, hey Dave, when you say uh, rotoscope, is it, is it like a scanner darkly? Scanner darkly, it's like Waking Life. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very similar to those films. And okay. uh, uh, but what's interesting is it combines it with archival footage and reenactments. You know, in in rotoscopic animation. So. Uh, like you see voiceover of the survivors' words played by younger selves, and then that is like overlaid on top of a reenactment in rotoscope. You know, so you see like yeah. this character describing what they did, and then you see a rotoscoped version of their younger self doing it. Uh, and so it's really creative how he decided to tell the story, and the the result is totally riveting. I was just on the edge of my seat the whole time, and very impressed with the movie. Uh, so it's called Tower. You can find more about it at towerdocumentary.com. It's currently doing a film festival run, and hopefully it gets picked up at some point in the future. wanted to mention another movie real quick called Transpecos, which is a thriller by another first-time director. And uh, it stars uh, 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 s- several really cool people, a trio of performances, including Clifton Collins Jr., friend of the Slash Filmcast, uh, who play Border Patrol agents who make a really crazy discovery that then leads them down a, uh, an, an unpredictable path. And uh, I thought this was a great thriller, very well done. Uh, and I would recommend you guys check it out when it comes out, I think, in theaters or uh, in, this fall. Samuel Goldwyn picked it up for distribution, but the movie is Transpecos. It's about these border patrolmen who uh, have to do things that they would rather not do, and uh, I really enjoyed the film. Finally, wanted to mention uh, a movie called Lo and Behold, uh, Reveries of the Connected World. Have you guys heard of this film? This is the new documentary about the internet directed by Werner Herzog. So, Davindra, uh, yes. the whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, yep. this is a movie that was made for Davindra. Yeah. Um, I am actually... I, I, I hope I will get a chance to, to talk to him and maybe even uh, do, do a little video interview with him about this. So Very cool. Be fun. So the movie's Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. Uh, and it is enjoyable, but, I mean, the, the, he chose such a broad topic. You know, <laughs> Technology. Technology and the Internet. Mean? Yeah, I mean, there's just so much stuff you could cover. Yeah. And so it is far from a comprehensive review of the impact that the internet has had on society. Uh, but he does tell us some pretty interesting stories. And of course, half of the enjoyment of watching these kinds yeah. of films is how Werner Herzogian it is. You know, yeah. he, he does a voiceover and it is very quirky and very funny. <laughs> uh, well, and let me ask you guys this. Would you watch a Werner Herzog uh, unboxing video? Totally. Because <laughs> I think that would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I would watch Werner Herzog do anything. And, and okay. He's, Noted. Al- he's almost become a parody of himself, but yes, yes. not in a bad way. I, I, I yeah. quite enjoy the content that he's been putting out. Uh, I mean, he's like the guy. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say, he's like Christopher Walken yeah. or um, yeah. uh, John Malkovich. Like, there's certain people that become this other thing <laughs> you know? and they enjoy playing with their image like he was on yeah. parks and rec uh but even the fact that he could still make movies in like this and still do really weird things like be the villain in jack reacher like yeah. I, I love this man yeah it's cool so anyway uh would recommend you check it out again far from comprehensive but uh the stories he does tell are pretty interesting and he does it in a way that only Werner herzog can do it uh and so for that reason alone it's worth checking out the movies lo and behold reveries of the connected world uh, and I anticipate it will be out in theaters at some point this year. I think uh, August 19th is the release date. Uh, Jeff Kanata, you've pointed out in the past how talking about film festivals on podcasts is, in general, not that interesting. <laughs> uh, 
just because people can't see these movies, so I try to keep it a little short. But I yeah. uh, did want to recommend Towers, Transpecos, and Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World as movies. And, and some of that's changing, honestly. Like, I found, like, after some film festivals, movies do end up either on video on demand or in limited release within a month or two. Yeah, like, they the, often the go The timeline similar. is speeding up, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So uh, worth uh, bookmarking those films and, and checking them out in the future. Uh, and I anticipate that I'm still not going to be done <laughs> with the Seattle International Film Festival next week. There's a movie I'm actually really looking forward to called Life Animated. Mm. Uh, plot summary from Google animated Disney movies help Owen Suskind a, a young autistic man communicate with his family it's a oh. documentary have uh, you not seen uh, that's that's uh, what David Suskind's the, the the journalist mm. I think uh, it's David right Ron, Ronald? Sus- Ron Suskind Ronald yeah Ron Suskind yeah, uh, yeah he it's an extraordinary story he was on um whatever they called that, like Night of a Thousand Comics or whatever with uh, John Stewart, the thing that they did for, um, for charity. And he, he came on and did a bit with somebody that did – oh, uh, with Gilbert Gottfried. And Gilbert Gottfried – it was, dude, such a tearjerker. Gilbert Gottfried came on and did um, the voice of whatever his character is, the bird from Aladdin. Uh-huh. Yago. And, Yago. Yago, right. And um, – this kid, his o- uh, Owen Suskind, right? Yep. He only communicates through memorization and impersonation of all those voices. So he was doing the voice of Yago with Gilbert Gottfried, and it was absolutely heartwarming yeah. and beautiful. It's an amazing story. I assume the movie will completely devastate me. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. It's called Life Animated, and it's going to be at the Seattle International Film Festival on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Um, so I'll be there at the theater. Uh, and that's what I've been watching this week. Devinder Hardwar, you've been watching a few things. Uh, yeah, I've been watching a lot of things, too, because those, those 15-hour flights, guys, there was so <laughs> much to watch. Uh, I checked out Preacher, just the first episode this at uh, this point, uh, but this is Seth Rogen and um, Evan Goldberg's adaptation of it uh, for AMC. And, uh, you know, I, I, I read some Preacher growing up. It was not, like, something I loved and adored. But I was always curious to see, like, how it could be translated to uh, to the screen. I think so far, like, you know, the way they're doing it, um, in, in a post-Breaking Bad, post, like, Game of Thrones world, uh, we have the technology. I think we have networks ready for weird, dark stories like this. So I, I feel like this is now the right time to make it happen. Um, and just based on the first episode, I really like where they're going. It seems like it's uh, pretty faithful to the comic from what I remember, uh, but mostly it's just very entertaining. It's just, it's, it, it is basically an epic story of good versus evil. Um, but it, it's told in a way that I'm sure most people have never seen before. Uh, I really like the leads. Dominic Cooper is Jesse Custer. Dominic Cooper was a uh, uh, daddy Stark in the uh, in um, the Marvel TV shows. So uh, Howard, or, Howard Stark, yeah, Howard Stark, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was fun. I always enjoyed him as that role, and he's he's just really great here as like a preacher who's just like a very very bad dude at times and has a dark past. Uh, and also also uh, Ruth Nega, who was in. Um, she was in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. And one of the really interesting sort of villains in that, she's here as his girlfriend, Tulip O'Hare. Uh, it is a really hard story um, to uh, summarize. But basically, uh, something happens that gives this preacher uh, the power to control what people do. So it's, it's sort of like... the word of God. 
the word of God. It is very similar to uh, what's his face from uh, from Jessica Jones uh, to for, to the villain from Jessica Jones. So it's really interesting to see that sort of purple like man. idea. Yeah, purple man. Uh, really interesting to see that idea just kind of come back and be something that the protagonist is using. Um, I love the look of the show so far, the vibe of it. Uh, I feel like they know they can be just as you know hardcore and grotesque as they need to be a lot of the show feels like uh this is the end of times just in terms of like the biblical imagery but also how like crazy obscene and blood soaked it can get just randomly too uh it's funny it's really fun to watch at this point uh hope they keep it up uh it's only 10 episodes at this point for this season but it's definitely a good ad- adaptation so yeah, far it took a while to get to the small Seriously. screen yeah so the preacher yeah, Preacher yeah, I, is on AMC right now. Jeff, you've seen mm-hmm. it as well? I haven't. I don't have the guts. I, I This <laughs> this is one of those uh, – I think it's probably my favorite comic book ever. Uh-huh. Um, it's such a, an incredible, complete tale. And it it is one of those rare things that I was like actively rooting against it ever becoming anything other than a comic book because I, would, I had so little faith that anybody could – do it mm-hmm. uh and so it's very encouraging to hear that you, you it's good I, it's sitting on my tivo uh the first few episodes and i just haven't had the guts to just turn it on because it it really means a lot to me this this show and i'll tell a little story if you guys have a second uh sure. that might sound like name dropping but i once was at, at seth rogan's house oh yeah i know yeah did uh, he was, uh, did he catch you or did the, he call the police <laughs> exactly <laughs> He'll never know. Um, <laughs> that does sound like a Dave Chen thing to do. Uh, no, I, didn't we make a joke a while back that you were watching movies at people's houses without them knowing? <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's true. Um, so no, I actually man, was invited to a uh, New Year's Eve party there a long time ago, many years ago, and uh, got a you know tour of his house and walked into one room that's sort of where all his geeky stuff is, and I saw a preacher page there, an original page uh with the steve dylan art and i was like oh man preacher i love it's like my favorite comic and it was like over in the corner it wasn't you know prominent in the room and he was very impressed that i knew that he was like dude it's my favorite either my favorite too this was given to me by kevin smith uh so uh wow so it i say that only to say that it really does come from a place of love them producing this 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 project like these guys get it so it, I think it's in good hands, but I still you can definitely had the- yeah you can feel the affection for the material. It almost feels like uh, what uh, Benioff and DB Weiss how they've approached Game of Thrones, just like very very much like reverent to the material, but I think not overly so. And the leads are great. The writing is pretty good so far. They have uh, I think one of the former Breaking Bad writers doing uh, show running work for this. So kind of good talent all around. I also have a Seth Rogen story, Jeff. Uh, oh, good. I once I once rode up an elevator. And he was right behind me, laughing the whole time, just like <laughs> for sixty floors, just like. <laughs> and that was I didn't turn around, but I just knew. I just I just knew. That's amazing. That's my that's, Seth Rogen story. That's nice. Good. That was a pretty good one. Uh, all right. Well, that's Preacher, and it's yeah. on AMC right now. Uh, you've been watching a couple other things. There, yeah, Joe. a couple more things. I want to mention uh, Hush. Have you guys heard about this? This is a horror thriller directed by Mike Flanagan. Um, it's about a deaf woman who is uh, working in the woods on her own. Always a good idea. Um, and a, I guess, a kill, serial killer or like a, a house invader starts stalking her. 
and it's about the cat and mouse game between them. Just a really, really simple and effective thriller. It stars Kate Siegel and John Gallagher Jr. as the uh, the serial killer, and I love him because he just like brings a lot to every role. Um, this is uh, Mike Flanagan is the guy who did Oculus, uh, which is a horror movie. I just liked for its inventiveness. Uh, it also looked really good too. It was just had a, like a really sleek design. Uh, I, I, this movie mostly worked for me because the concept is super strong. We haven't really seen something like this, um, and it's on Netflix. Netflix now so you can watch it pretty easily so if you're looking for like a nice you know thriller or horror movie to just sink into one night check this out for sure that's hush it's on netflix right now and you've also yep. been watching chef's table on netflix chef's right? table the new season um yeah i just wanted to point out it's it's here it's still good um this is a series created by david gelb the director of zero dreams of sushi and it sort of applies that that very like cinematic style of uh you know documenting food to restaurants all over the world yeah each and, one covers a yeah. restaurant tour specifically right yes yeah. yes so that's that's a thing and different directors all around too so it's like they're all using his same template of looks his yeah. design but it's different people directing it uh I, i'm still loving it i do wonder though like there is a point where you listen to these you know high-end <laughs> chefs right. talk about the magic of their their, their views of food and uh, culinary style and like uh, the meaning of what they're doing after a point it does get to be a bit a bit much uh so i do suggest a bit repetitive uh, maybe, right because there's no yeah. real narrative yes. driving force between behind most of these episodes so yeah yeah and it's more about like these people's worldview and how they got to where they are yeah. and for a lot of them it's like well I, I had this thing there was this food that a lot of people liked and nobody was doing it in a high-end way so I, I sort of worked and did it in a high-end way. And that's the story for a lot of these. Um, but it's just interesting to see, like, how they go about it. I do wish uh, at some point there would be, like, a spinoff show or something that talks more about maybe more accessible food. <laughs> because the restaurants profiled in this show are, like, you know, the highest of the high-end. These are places that... Uh, you, you would need really um, advanced uh, reservations to get into. You need to do some planning. It's not somewhere you could just step into. And uh, I don't know. I, I have a real appreciation as well for the more like down to earth, um, you know, accessible places. They also serve really good food. Um, when I was in Taipei for Computex, I went to Din Tai Fung five times. Din Tai Fung is you know the home of. Uh, Award-winning soup dumplings. Like, these things will change your life. And D uh, Dave, I'm so jealous. And Jeff, too, actually. Because there are, there are Dintai Fungs in L.A. and Seattle. So It is literally a 15-minute drive away. <laughs> Shut up. So let me ask Shut you this up. question. Vinci, you went five times. Did you order different things every time? Oh, yeah. You... Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a huge it's a huge menu. Um, so it's a different experience every time. Sometimes it was takeout. Uh, the whole – a part of the experience of Dintai Fung is just waiting in, with the crowds of people because there's like this sense of anticipation you're all like just dealing with for an hour or something so i did that as much as possible because it was right next to my hotel great luck um but what i what i also loved about it is that it's a very this is yeah it's a michelin star winning food uh very very great food but also really inexpensive really accessible this is high-end food for everyone so i do hope um you know as much as i love seeing what the the greatest chefs in the world are doing a chef's table i would like to see something more down to earth at some point from netflix just one reason i love bourdain is because his most of his shows he's he does the high-end stuff but he also devotes so much time to street food and to much more accessible things yeah that's chef's table it's uh, on netflix right now and that's all that we've been watching this week. Um, let's 
thank all the people now who donated to the podcast this week. Thanks to David Cho from Los Angeles, California, Alex S. from Germany, Sterling W. from Fort Worth, Texas, Michael C. from the U.K., and Carlos from Cundinamarca, Colombia. Cundinamarca, Cundinamarca, Colombia. Thank you so much for your contributions. Thanks also to new subscribers, Angel G. and Dennis P., for subscribing to the podcast at the rate of $2 per month. Uh, all the money you donate at SlashFilm.com uh, goes towards defraying the cost of seeing movies and putting on the show. So we really appreciate it. Go to SlashFilm.com, click on the SlashFilmCast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page if you want to support us via monetary donation. Uh, we are ever so grateful. Uh, let's move on. There's only one thing I want to discuss this week in mm-hmm. film news, and that is the state of the summer movie wager. And not only the state of the summer movie wager, kind of the state of uh, box office in general this summer. And I linked to this piece, and you retweeted me this morning, Devendra. Uh, Scott Mendelson wrote something uh, at Forbes called, When Every Sequel is Special, mm-hmm. No Sequel is Special. <laughs> and uh, the article was about how there are so many sequels this summer that uh, it, is, it seems to be overwhelming audiences. Like Sequels used to be a relatively sure thing, that if the first film did really well, the second movie would do just as well, if not better, or maybe at worst, like slightly worse. Uh, and this summer has just been brutal to sequels. So let me just list a few examples. Wait, I will, let me just say before yeah. you do that, I don't think this summer has more sequels than last summer. Uh, we, no. we, should, we could count them up, but I, I don't think it's more. I think it's maybe just fatigue. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's also just maybe that the, the number of like big budget tentpole-esque sequels is larger, although I don't have official mathematics to support or, that. But, or maybe the things that are getting sequels don't deserve them. They, they, maybe they were successful, but it seems like everything – like Now You Can See Me is a franchise? <laughs> <laughs> now You See Me, Jeffrey. Now You See Me. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know how well that's going to do yet. Maybe it will be wildly successful. But I, I bet a lot of sequel directors and filmmakers and execs are looking at the performance of these films and really being nervous about the rest of the summer right now. Like the people who made Independence Day Resurgence, I don't think they are super confident going into uh, next or you know a few weeks from now. Like what's going to happen? Uh, okay, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Out of the Shadows, thirty-five point three million dollar debut. Uh, and that is compared to the 2014 installment, which debuted with $65 million, so almost twice as much money. Alice in Wonderland, the original film, when it first came out, made $116 million uh, in its opening weekend. And the sequel, which came out recently, is going to be lucky to do $116 million in its entire run. Uh, it is, By the way, it I called really that badly. one. I called that one in our in our you did. Uh, summer movie podcast. You did, you did, uh, and so really nice job there. Uh, Neighbors two. This one is not as big of a deal, just because Neighbors one uh, didn't make that much money at the box. Like, it, it, or rather, both films didn't cost that much money to make, but uh, the original film made one hundred fifty million dollars domestically uh, in its opening weekend. It made, I think, uh, around. 65 or no I'm sorry 49 million dollars in its opening weekend uh and neighbors 2 still hasn't reached that amount to date yet now um, I, x-men apocalypse I really as been... well I don't need to go into the numbers but x-men apocalypse as well not doing very well and uh, it's going to be lucky to cross 160 million dollars domestically so now I haven't been really paying attention to the box office numbers myself 
is this, are we sort of down overall? Are fewer people going to the movies this summer so far? Or are people just going to see the big hits still? Are we, is, is Civil War still just making all the money? Uh, I, I think we have to wait till the end of summer to have like a full tally of how well this summer did. You know, c- certain weeks fluctuate. Some weeks are up from the last year. Other weeks are down. Uh, but uh, it, it does seem to me that there is some bloodletting going on with all these uh, sequels coming out and, and not doing very well. And I guess my question to you guys is just, why do you think that is? I mean, we can only blindly speculate. But I would why, say... Why nobody is seeing them or why these movies are getting made? Uh, why, why no one's seeing them? I mean, I would say that there are a few possible causes, right? Number yeah. one is people weren't super impressed with the first one. And so yes. they're like, why go out? Why turn out for the second one? Of course, many counterexamples exist for that theory, but whatever. Maybe they just, the first one sucked, so they're not going to turn out for the second one. Or the first one satisfied some kind of curiosity mm-hmm. that doesn't need to be satisfied again. Which is, I think, the Alice situation, yeah. Alice situation, right, very good. Or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, another one. Uh, second theory is just that um, people's reactions on social media, people's reviews, are having more of an impact now. You know, that most of these movies that didn't do well were reviewed poorly. And uh, maybe that's why, you know, that, that's taking more of an impact. And number mm-hmm. three is maybe the, uh, there's just more movies out now or there's yeah. more yeah. big budget movies. And so you have to choose. We're seeing you can't, this. There, there are too many movies for us to review yeah. sometimes. Like we you have to pick and choose what we're reviewing. Yeah. You can't see every movie. So you have to strategize. I can only see one sequel this month. Yeah. So it's going to be Neighbors 2. I can only see one yeah. sequel. It's going to be X-Men Apocalypse. Yeah. Um, and I think like to, to what I asked you before, too, I also don't think enough. I think maybe some people do ask themselves like why does this movie exist why would i go watch this and maybe they saw the first one and weren't impressed or they saw it and thought it was fine but i don't need to see another one of those like i think that's happening and there's a disconnect between the economics of like movie production versus what people actually want to see yeah and and there's all these movies that exist now that feel like they exist solely to make money and for no other reason not because there's some artistic vision behind it the huntsman winter's war is probably the best example I've not seen that film, but I've heard it feels uh, very rote and very much like a forced march just to make some money off the success of Snow White and the Huntsman. Um, I, and there's too much stuff to watch outside of movies, too. Like, there's, there's too much stuff ever. There's a YouTube to watch. We've got so yeah. much YouTubing yeah. to do. And we're, we're, yeah, we're talking about scripted content. Yeah, everyone else is watching just whatever the hell is happening on YouTube. Can I propose an, uh, an alternate theory that you guys are – feel, feel free to, to, to mm-hmm. knock it down. Theorize. But, speculate. That's what we're doing right now. Yeah. My wild speculation here based on zero data yep. is uh, I think there is a confusion uh, uh, from the, the powers that be over what people want. I think there is this idea that a, a property deserves a sequel – when in reality, I think it people only want a sequel when they care about the characters. It's not the property that they care about. It's not Alice in Wonderland. It's not uh, you know now you see me. It's not. It, it's when they feel something for these characters, and I think that's why Marvel works well. That's why the Fast and the Furious movies seem to keep working over and over. That's why. Batman v Superman makes tons of money money its opening weekend. People care about those characters. They don't care about the neighbors' characters. They thought it was a funny concept that one time, but there's no affection for those people. I, I think that may have something to do with it. That it that that the the people who give the green light to things say, 
these these properties are valuable and let's capitalize on these properties rather than the underlying characters. I mean, I think there's certainly something to that, Jeff. Uh, I would say <laughs> that there are movies like X-Men Apocalypse that, again, is, is struggling compared to X-Men Days of Future Past, uh, where people might have cared about the characters, but then maybe other things offset that, like the fact that X-Men Apocalypse wasn't very good. Um, but yeah, we're, we're only just speculating freely. It does feel, even just in this conversation, I'm amazed at how many sequels we've talked about, even in the last like three minutes. Right. Uh, this is the summer of sequels, and maybe there's just a lot of sequel fatigue out there. Every yeah. summer is the summer of sequels, right? I mean, it's not—it's nothing new. I mean, what were the biggest movies last year? Jurassic World, and you know, there's it's always the summer of sequels. Yeah, it's true. And Pitch Perfect Two made a boatload of cash last yeah. summer as well. So, yeah, who knows? No one can predict the will of the American movie going. Certainly, forward. we can't. Because yeah. I'm sitting here looking at putting Ice Age on my list and going, oh, I'm an idiot. And uh, <laughs> I'm still you know, holding I, out hope for for Ice Age, but it does seem to me that uh, X Men Apocalypse probably will take the number ten spot. We'll see. Uh, anyway, uh, on that note, you can go visit thesummermoviewager.com to see how we're doing. Although I would point out that until literally Labor Day. Uh, you probably won't know what the final rankings are, uh, and they are fairly meaningless until we get later in the summer. Uh, <laughs> but it's fun to sure, see. You, you tell yourself that, Dave. You tell yourself. That. <laughs> yeah, we should pretty. Yeah, we should give big thanks to uh, the folks that put together that website because we didn't yes. do it. Yeah, uh, Paul Baker put that together. Devendra currently has twenty-eight points, and uh, I am losing <laughs> by a long shot with only sixteen points right now. Uh, and again, I, I must must emphasize that uh, this chart is completely meaningless at this point in the summer <laughs> because Devendra is basically getting points because Angry Birds is yes, on the chart yes, at all. Yes. Right. Uh, not still like anybody's what, game. Still anybody's, still anybody's game. game. Still anybody's game. And I think Finding Dory, uh, that movie release, is going to make a big difference in terms of a lot of people's charts. Uh, where that falls this summer is going to be a really uh, crucial uh, ranking. So... Finding Dory, uh, Peter Soretta's hopes at winning this contest lie on you. So, uh, Anyway, let's move on, guys, to our review of Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stop It. Okay, where to start? Ever since I was born, I loved music. As soon as I could, I started a band. Right away, we knew he was something special. First. Immediately, I said, man, this guy right here, He's going to make it big. Connor for real is actually saving the record industry. Everybody's just waiting to see, like, what he does next. Connor's hot. You tell me you didn't see him and say, yo, he's the star. It's Connor. currently has 32 people on his personal payroll. Sure, Connor surrounds himself with people who are agreeable. That was from the trailer of Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stoppin'. It's the newest film by uh, directors Akiva Schaefer and Jorma Tacone. And guys, this movie bombed at the box office this weekend. And it, that is very upsetting because Jorma Tacone... Super talented guy. He also directed one of my favorite comedies of all time, MacGruber, 
which also, also bombed, bombed. Yeah. in opening weekend. <laughs> it made, it. They made almost exactly the same amount of money. Did you say it deserved it, Jeff? said it didn't deserve it. it I love that movie. That movie's but, so good. Since we were just talking about the summer movie wager, one of the greatest, uh, I think, uh, mistakes in the history of the 10-year the now history of the summer movie wager was when Alex Albrecht put MacGruber as like his number two movie. Oh, man. <laughs> he thought it was going to wow. be this massive sleeper hit. And uh, boy, it did not do that. Yeah. Music I mean, satire these, these does guys, not. Like between Hot Rod and The Watch, too. Like they they haven't really made movies that have done well. Yeah, they've made movies that have been cult successes. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I love MacGruber so much, and uh, this movie is also very enjoyable. It's a shame it didn't do better at the box office. It seems like musical satire is not. America's domestic box office bag, guys. It did feel I, weird watching this in a theater, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, but you compare it also to like Walk Hard, which is another great musical documentary that and also tanked. bombed at the box office. Yes, <laughs> maybe maybe recognize the trend, people. Like, I saw, maybe this belongs somewhere else. I, yeah, maybe put it out like on video on demand or something like yeah. that. You know, day and date. Uh, I actually bought Walk Hard Blu-ray at a Seven <laughs> Eleven. In in a used oh you know Blu-ray envelope uh, recently, <laughs> like literally three days ago, I went there. I went to Seven Eleven thinking of buying a drink, and uh-huh. uh, there was a huge con- carton full of used Blu-rays that didn't even have the boxes on them. And we know you I can't resist. Like, yeah, <laughs> thank God you didn't go to Seven Eleven thinking of buying a movie. At least that, <laughs> at least you were going for a Slurpee. Yeah, and uh, it was this box of Blu-rays for three dollars each. They didn't have boxes. They just were in envelopes. Like that's how they saved on the money. And walk hard, Blu-ray orphans. Walk hard on Blu-ray, three dollars, guys. Walk hard on Blu-ray, three dollars. How totally much was your it. drink? Uh, I ended up not buying a drink. I just bought the Blu-rays. <laughs> you got you were quenched by great Blu-ray. I also got Speed Racer, the Wachowski film. Nice, uh, yeah, that's a great Blu-ray. Three dollars yeah. as well. Anyway, okay, enough about my Blu-ray buying at Seven Eleven. <laughs> Pop star Never Stop, Never Stop, and the plot summary from IMDb reads, When it becomes clear that his solo album is a failure, a former boy band member does everything in his power to maintain his celebrity status. So I guess let me start by asking, you know, Jeff Kanata, what is your opinion of Lonely Island? Do you find them funny? Do you find their antics amusing? And if so, did you think that pop star translated those antics to the big screen in an effective way? Absolutely, and yes. I mean, I I find them very funny. I've enjoyed... Uh, their SNL digital shorts for the entire period that they were writing for SNL. I, I think their uh, their brand of whimsy and actually you know decent beats. I know they don't craft the beats themselves; they appropriate the beefs, beats from beats crafters. And then uh, I think they're called beats crafters, right, guys? Yes, right? that's a great. I'm, I'm hit. Like lens I'm crafters. Hit. Yeah, they go to beats crafters, and in 20 <laughs> minutes or less. They get some beats. And then I, I want up, my Beastmaster remake to be called Beats Crafter. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one that you buy at 7 Eleven instead of a Slurpee. <laughs> um, anyway, they, uh, you know, these guys have really clever rhymes and, and even more clever premises for their, for their uh, songs. You know, I, there isn't one of us who doesn't uh, sing, uh, you know, Dick in a Box or, mm-hmm. you know, anytime I'm on a boat, I got to sing, I'm on a boat. You know, the, yeah. Those are you great. Love it when your friends do that. It's the best. <laughs> I got my pictures about that. Yeah, <laughs> that has in no way gotten old over the years. Never, never will never get old. Um, anyway, I, I've I have enjoyed their antics for you know. And back in the day, like before YouTube, I know I'm old, but uh, before YouTube was a time, kids, not too long ago, um, back when uh, digital video was like these things that you had to have attachments on your email. 
and uh, <laughs> or you know you went to a specific website that had a real specific player video. Jeff yeah. yeah exactly or you went to um, you know a, a very specific website to see the Lonely Island guys doing a, a video here in Los Angeles and trying to compete um, you know so I, I've known about these guys for a long time and, and I think they're real funny and this movie's funny I, this movie's very funny I mean I think uh, it is skewering something that I'll be honest I don't have tons of of uh, you know a deep wealth of knowledge about I've never seen the Justin Bieber biopic <laughs> so I'm sure I missed a lot of the specific references to that which is I'm sure this movie is very much conscious of and referencing repeatedly uh, that, that all went over my head and uh you know a lot of the sort of very specific pop music references I'm sure went over my head but there's still plenty here that's just silliness and uh just you know wacky broad comedy that I find uh, find very funny. And also, uh, it has heart. The movie has a heart. And, and I, I always enjoy that in, in my films. You know, I want things to be funny. And oftentimes, when you find movies that have heart, it's at the expense of the funny. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll get like this awesome first act of laughs. And then the second and third acts are like we get bogged down in the plot because we need to you know, pay off this sort of template of plot. And I never really felt that with this movie. You definitely can see the plot, but I never felt like it sacrificed the funny for hitting those plot points or hitting those beats. Um, and, uh, and, and I give it a lot of credit for that. You know, I, there are a lot of really specific jokes that, <laughs> that I, you know, that I think of. And I, I walked out of the theater singing the tune. I was, the you know, for two days afterwards, I was like, <laughs> I'm a fucker like they fuck Ben Laden. You know, it's, <laughs> and it's not the greatest thing to be singing over and over, but uh, it's still catchy tunes, you know, and, and uh, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. How about you, Devinger Hardware? Uh, you a fan of Lonely Island? And if so, I am. I, I, I've loved most of what they've done for SNL. And honestly, I've liked the movies they've done too. Like I, Hot Rod is an underappreciated uh, comedic gem. If only, I mean, do, do you want to see Andy Samberg just go fight Ian McShane? Just like like go toe-to-toe <laughs> with Ian McShane. Watch Hot Rod. And that you will see that in that movie. Uh, I, I like their weird sense of humor. This one feels almost like a, this is Spinal Tap for our current time. Just like, just like a, a, a reflection of the music industry and pop culture right now. Um, it's funny. Uh, I, I think lots of the jokes could just kind of land really well and do a great job of like poking fun of like what, I don't know, what pop music does now. I also really like the, uh, the TMZ bits, the TMZ spoofs are amazing. I have never just seen because... the TMZ show. Is that is really that a spot on uh parody of those well, guys? First of all, how, how have you gone through life Especially like doing what we do, Dave. Like you've never seen like the clips of them doing those weird, weird interviews in TMZ. I feel like I've, I've they're everywhere. Accidentally watched. Yes, it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I never intended to watch it, but I certainly knew the exact reference that they were parroting there. With but the yeah, that, that's basically it. Like yeah, the, the the drinks, the sort of like gorilla camera work, uh, and then people just like. I don't know being jerks about the footage that they you know stalked and sort of stole from celebrities too, like just being assholes all around. That the TMZ stuff, just uh, they're small bits of this movie, but I love how they just go full tilt crazy. Uh, yeah, that that was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think what I love about this movie is that it starts pretty um, you know pretty silly and it escalates, 
in you know increasingly great ways and they must have pulled in a lot of favors with some of their <laughs> musical friends because they got some pretty nice cameos in this too yeah uh so yeah i'll just say i love the movie as well i thought it was very funny uh yeah i think that uh firstly what's awesome about lonely island is the stuff works as music even yeah if yeah. you don't listen to any of the lyrics it's still uh, apes and occasionally transcends uh, the kind of stylistic trappings of the genre that they're working in. and Kudos to uh, the Beats Crafters, I guess. Yeah, those Beat Crafters are amazing. <laughs> uh, they have really talented producers on those albums, and I think they do a great job with them. Uh, and they, some of them are really catchy. You know, they worm their way into popular culture. And so you definitely see uh, a lot of those songs on display here in mm-hmm. this movie. I mean, there is a song that Jeff alluded to entitled Finest Girl, the Bin Laden song. That is about a woman who wanted to be fucked like uh, the U.S. military fucked Bin Laden. And yep. it takes a certain kind of twisted genius to come up with that as a concept, play it out to the end, and then make a catchy song. Like, uh, you know, who knows how long it took to make that song from, be- from conception to writing the lyrics all the way to recording – uh, you know, weeks if not months. Yeah, I'd and love to, to see the making of sessions of this movie. Yeah. To believe in that vision <laughs> all the way to the conclusion of the recording, it takes a certain yeah. kind of genius. To, to do, do choreography that. for it. Yeah. To really like set up the make <laughs> the Make whole a music station. video. I mean, you really yeah. have to believe that <laughs> yeah. what you're doing is funny and brilliant and, uh, and that people are yeah. going to get it. They commit. And, yeah. In fact, my my only cri- – oh, not my only, but my biggest criticism with the movie, I think, is that uh, it sort of leads up to this ultimate song at the yeah, end, yeah. which I don't think is the best song in the movie. And that's the biggest mm-hmm. bummer is that that last song is, is pretty close to the bottom of my list of, of the songs in the movie. And I <laughs> wish that it had felt like this achievement like the, oh my god this song yes you know when we finished the movie and it, it didn't uh so yeah. i understand what you're saying jeff uh but i will say that despite you know I, i'm probably not going to sing that song you know it's not going to be the one i play on repeat like i am playing with the finest girl uh on my spotify but uh what is cool about that last song and again uh, i don't even think we need to go into spoilers but uh I will say what's cool about the last song is it is a perfect summation of the self-importance of many pop stars. Uh, yeah, and, sure. and I just I just came from Sasquatch Music Festival in Washington last week where you have all these uh, rock stars and <coughs> musical artists saying like, you know, together we can achieve world peace and everyone just needs to be a little bit happier. And Man, that last song is a spot-on parody of that kind of attitude, uh, that that music can be incredibly transformative in people's lives. Uh, and it can be. You know, I, I love music, and I ma- I've spent a lot of my life making music. But still, uh, I, I found what that song was satirizing to be pretty well done. Even I kind of felt like they, they had actually already even done that with that humble song. Because there's, right. there's a song about how humble he is that I think is even is better and kind of accomplishes the same thing. I don't know. And yeah, I just thought, yeah. felt like the, even the individual imagery in that last song, which is all about these these ideas that are supposed to be profound but aren't, even the individual imagery wasn't as individually funny as mm-hmm. it 
maybe could have been. I don't know. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, it's a ticky tack. That that, thing, that but... song was all about the the guest stars, basically. That, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of what made that yeah. sequence. I uh, other than that, the only other issue I have with the film is uh, these musical documentary films do feel like they have a pretty similar template or musical yeah, yeah. music films in general. You know, this mm-hmm. idea of. Uh, a musical star who gets too big for his britches and alienates his friends and family. But we, and we needs- love to see the giants fall. That, that's our fault <laughs> as an audience, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they, they all follow the same template and this movie is no different. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's, that's another issue I, I kind of have. With it. it's, these are very, very yeah. minor nits to pick with a, a movie that was overall very enjoyable. I, I um, think the bigger problem for me is it's it, this does not feel like a movie you should be seeing in theaters. Like I, I enjoyed watching it. I had a nice seat. Uh, my wife really <laughs> wants to see this movie, but she she doesn't want to take the time to like go see what's ostensibly a very long Lonely Island skit. You know, and yeah. I compare this to something like Seven Days in Hell, which is that great HBO mock, you know sports mockumentary, which is also brilliant, ingenious, and stars Andy Samberg. Um, but I saw that thing; uh, they just you know streaming on HBO, and I saw that thing like five times in a single week because that's how you have to watch a weird ass mockumentary like that. And I wish I could do that with this movie right now. Mm, interesting, yeah. Uh, I will say that I found this movie's skewering of Macklemore to be incredibly hilarious. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't know any better, you would think this movie, like, uh, the people behind this movie hate Macklemore, which I yeah, don't think yeah. is actually the case. Uh, but just there, the, there the whole Macklemore-Ryan Lewis relationship, uh, I thought, was rendered really funny. And, and I thought to myself, yeah, what does Ryan Lewis do back there anyway? If you've ever seen him in concert, he basically plays the same uh, role as Jorma Tacone does in this uh, movie, uh-huh. kind of getting the audience revved up, you know, that's basically his role. Uh, and so I thought that that dynamic was, was very funny. And also the part when uh, he puts on a mask too, <laughs> which uh, kind of is a reference to this moment when Macklemore put on a mask that everyone thought was quite uh, anti-Semitic in nature. Uh, I just thought that was also, it just, the Macklemore stuff I really loved. Um, so I really love Tim Meadows in in yeah. this movie, yeah. and that's a guy who's underused, I think, overall, and is really funny. And but just his whole like his origin story is hilarious <laughs> to me. I was so tickled by that. Uh, the the other thing I wanted to mention is I read this review that I thought was quite uh, apt, uh, and I, I can't find it right now. But basically. Uh, it, it referred to the comments of Justin Bieber when he went to visit Anne Frank's house. And Justin <laughs> Bieber in real life said uh, that he thought that Anne Frank would have been a believer if she had been alive in present day. Yeah. And I don't think any of us can argue with that. And I, I, this review, and I'm trying to find uh, this review so I can refer to where you can find it, but basically both A, set the stage for a movie like Popstar Never Stop, Never Stop in, and B, made such a movie unnecessary because <laughs> yeah, it is uh, its own parody. It, yeah it, it, like pop music in in many ways is its own parody. Yes. so yes. uh and so i think a lot of people were talking about this movie like it's shooting fish in a barrel uh and i think that's fairly accurate you know there's a lot sure. of self-importance and uh a lot of stuff that's easy parody in in popular music culture but i think the film does it wonderfully and there are many moments that that you can laugh out loud and the music is Great as usual. So, uh, it sounds like we're all fan of this movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really Too bad it. we're the only ones who saw it. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> the whole like. country. Uh, well, that's our review of Pop Star. Never stop, never stop, and stay tuned for a brief after dark. In the meantime, 
where can we find more of your work on the internet this week, Devendra Hardwar? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Devendra and write about tech at Engadget.com. How about you, Jeff? I'm at Jeff Kanata on Twitter, which is two N's and one T. And uh, I also have several other shows for you to watch. Uh, I have a video game show called DLC. We just did our big E3 predictions and hype train episode, which came out today. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And next week, we're going to do extra episodes covering E3. It's the biggest week in video games. So check that show out if you like video games, 5x5.tv slash DLC. Uh, Also, I do a show on CNET called Tomorrow Daily. You can find that at tomorrowdaily.com. And a comedy science show called We Have Concerns that you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. Find all of my stuff at DaveChen.me. Find The Primary Instinct, the movie I directed out of Hulu. You can watch it if you're in the U.S. and have Hulu. And uh, also uh, find me on Twitter at DaveChensky. That's DaveChensky. Next week sees the release of three major films. Conjuring 2, Now You See Me 2, and Duncan Jones' Warcraft, which has already been referred to by some critics as the battlefield earth of the 21st century. <laughs> I, uh, I hope it does okay. I'm a huge fan of Duncan Jones, but everything I've heard about that movie says it's a disaster. Uh, I'm curious to see what uh, James Wan gave up, probably, I'm assuming, $15 million to direct Fast 8. You know, what mm-hmm. did he give that up for? It was The Conjuring 2. He had a real passion for that movie. So uh, that's the movie we'll be reviewing here on the Slash Homecast. Uh, and we are huge fans of Conjuring 1. So uh, Conjuring 2, it's going to be me and Devendra next week because Jeff's going to be off at E3. Uh, so stay tuned to hear what we think of James Wan's newest film on the next episode of the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. All right, Devendra Hardar, what did you think of X-Men Apocalypse since you couldn't talk about it last week on the podcast? And we should say spoilers for X-Men yeah, Apocalypse. Yeah, spoilers, of course. Yeah. Um, all I have to say, guys, um, is uh, is this what you want? Is this what I am? <laughs> you guys have turned me into the reluctant villain of this review because I sat back and listened to that review. And you, it's funny because um, I feel like you listed off all the things I had issues with. And you were like, oh, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we, we, en- we enjoyed it for that. Um, so I'm not, I'm tr- not going to try to attack you guys because um, I think you all brought up good points for liking the movie. But I am going to attack the hell out of this movie uh, because it is, it's not a reboot. It's not a remake. It's a retread. It, it just oh, does snap. everything we've seen before in these X-Men movies. And uh, it's definitely Brian Singer's worst X-Men movie. That's, that's really hard not to argue. I do see people saying that it's even worse than X3. And I have to say, I I'd never think I would be defending X3, but you can go back and watch that movie and um, certain bits of it work. You know, I, I think there are some set pieces that work. There are character <laughs> moments that work. Uh, in this movie, very little works. Like nothing... It's astonishing to me, like how badly this movie stumbles. Like you start with uh, Apocalypse, um, a villain who exists just to be bad, just just to be evil, because I guess he really took his name to heart. So he really has to like go out there and like wreck the world. But he has no clear motivation for what's going on. Um, and I think because of that, there's no real you know, motivation for our heroes either other than to stop this new, you know, super powerful villain. And I think that's the big problem with it. Like, uh, Dave, you were talking about that opening sequence and just like how badly staged it was and how 
ugly it was. Totally agree. That was a good chance to like maybe go back and do something. I don't know, maybe a little more human, like what Brian Singer kind of brought to the series and brought to the comic book movie genre as a whole. You know, the very first scene of X-Men 1. Um, what's also funny to me is that this movie constantly goes back and refers to those scenes. Um, very, you know, different scenes from all these different movies. Um, while at the same time kind of redoing some of those scenes in really terrible ways, that's probably not the best strategy. If you're if you're just like retrying plot lines and you're reminding us of all these other movies that we kind of loved and you know just dug a little more, uh, but back to the apocalypse thing, like it's I, I know like that character has a certain history in the comics, but you know Brian Singer and Simon Kimberg, like they've been known to change things in the series to kind of suit the needs of the cinematic universe. I actually think the idea of like charting what could have been the first you know mutant from like him being born him maybe being abandoned by his family for being a freak and like slowly acquiring these powers and this alien technology or something that would have been kind of cool as an opening sequence and then getting to the point where you know maybe in his biblical times uh the world was shit and he wanted to destroy everything and that leads us to today you know where he get where he's back and he's like oh yeah i, I by the way i still want to destroy everything uh that that may have grounded the movie a little more um i think the biggest crime in this movie for me um, is Magneto. Kind of everything around Magneto. Um, I don't know how much more this guy needs to lose for us to really <laughs> understand that Magneto is a tortured soul. I think the, know, biggest, the biggest crime this movie commits is spending so yeah. much time on Magneto. We've seen well, that journey already. Exactly. And we have a and bunch actually, of new characters we could be spending time mm-hmm. with, right? Exactly. There, there is that. I don't mind starting with Magneto in a very new place and kind of happy. But it's also like knowing these movies and knowing the comic book movie genre as a whole. It's like you see Magneto happily you know, with a mother and da- a wife and daughter. You know they're going to die. You know they are not long for this world. Um, I think there's a better way to maybe portray how, um, I don't know, that he kind of existed in that family structure. But that forest scene, guys, that scene where a faulty arrow, where somebody is just like, oops, I just killed your whole family. Um, That was horrifically bad. I, I laughed out loud. In the theater, because it feels like not only does that whole Magneto storyline feel like something from Zoolander, right? Like him getting like a dirty, dirty job, a dirty, normal, down to earth job. He wants to be with normal people. Um, but in that scene, it, it, it's it's weird how casually the movie just kills his family as if they only existed to be killed. Um, I'm pretty sure a single arrow, especially one that wasn't even like fully cocked and like fully like <laughs> the guy was like really aiming and ready to like hurt somebody. I don't think it's going to kill two people at once. Um, and uh, Vindra was really bothered by the arrow. If you I, I am really bothered because <laughs> that is the crux of the movie, guys. That, that, that's how you're pulling Magneto back into this. And if what you're doing is a parody of this entire genre, then your movie is a joke. Like it, everything kind of rests on that thing because he's also the big, powerful, uh, you know, horseman that Apocalypse is kind of holding on to as somebody who can like destroy the world. More on that later. Um, but that forest scene, guys. So like, OK, a, a mistaken arrow kills his whole family. Um, oops. Uh, I love how quickly he's just like th- there isn't even like any moment where he's like, oh, maybe maybe I could try to save them. No, no. He immediately collapses. Because he knows his whole family is dead. He knows because the plot line dictates it. 
and not because he tried to get help or tried to do anything else. It's just I found that all hilarious. And then then his final shout out um, after killing the men with the locket, which is, you know, that was a cool sequence. It's emotionally resonant. We have seen Magneto do things like that before. Um, it, it fits for that scene, though. But him shouting out, yeah, is this what you want? Is this who I am? feels like the most on the nose thing to shout out at this point like it's this is a movie lacking in entire subtlety i think in any way like this is a movie that has magneto go to auschwitz and destroy auschwitz um i because that's not something he could have done before there was nothing (laughs) stopping him like that that didn't prove anything other than the fact that apocalypse had really weird um he had really fun teleportation powers and he was like "Hey, hey look at that thing that thing destroyed your life why don't you destroy that thing? And that's that's character <laughs> motivation for him. Um, yeah, so I think they ruined Magneto. Basically, by that point, uh, t- towards most of the rest of the movie, he's just like kind of grieving and silent and like destroying things. Um, but uh, this movie doesn't even care about the last X Men movie yeah. that came before it. Can you I, know? Can I like, talk a little bit about go that? For it, go for uh, it. Uh, so, uh, firstly, I want to mention an article that Matt Singer wrote called no it's not just you the x-men apocalypse timeline makes no sense yes jeff Kanata alluded to this but matt singer broke it down like piece by piece in his article saying you know that these characters ages make no sense at all if the timeline mm-hmm. is what they what you know from uh, a continuation of x-men yeah. first class i'm not even talking about the ages but that is definitely a point because they keep skipping like 10 years right between these movies yeah. for, ha- for no havoc. reason and that's and that's how we know that we've achieved full comic book Yes. <laughs> Havoc, Havoc is the big one because Havoc yes. it was a teenager in 1962 and his brother is a teenager in 1983. <laughs> so they are born 20 years apart. Which, Quicksilver looks the same. But well, what Dave yeah. is worried about is that Quicksilver can't breathe air quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, so there's yeah. this piece by uh, this email from Matt C who wrote, writes into slash from Kestima.com that I really appreciated. And he talks about the ending of X-Men Days of Future Past, which Jeff Kanata, we didn't even talk about this on on the episode, but uh, X-Men Days of Future Past, the ending of that movie is uh, Magneto wraps Wolverine in all this uh, concrete like rebar and throws him into the Potomac or some body of water in Washington, D.C. And then he's found by General Stryker, who in a last second reveal, we discover is actually Mystique. Right, uh, so he's not actually going with Stryker to the Weapon X. Expo- Wait, what? So, so I, I'm convinced that that mystique reveal at the end of X Men: Days of Future Past was like Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. They find <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Like he he never actually intended to pay it off. It was just kind of this right. oh crazy reversal thing. Maybe, like yeah. maybe when the, the next Wolverine movie may like because it also seems like that cameo was a direct you know reference to what's going to happen in the Wolverine movie or maybe the the teaser at the end of this one. Um, but what I'm talking about, guys, forget the timeline, which is ridiculous in all comic book movies. I'm talking about just like ideals, things characters fought and died for in X-Men Days of Future Past. Um, just like the whole the whole thing about like Mystique, like trying to be mutant and proud. It's astounding to me, like we spent that whole movie of her like really trying to build up this sort of like resistance and trying to like def- uh, defy the ideas of what humans want from her. And in this movie, she's like, oh, you know, I prefer being human. Oh, whatever. <laughs> For, forget, forget about everything I said before. I think it's informed um, a little bit by that blue paint, but yes. Um, I'm sure. uh, any, anyway, let me read this email because it's pretty good. Matt writes in to slash from gmail.com. I had a big problem with how Wolverine was handled in this film. Yep. At the end of X-Men Days of Future Past, Wolverine is on the brink of death 
when Mystique, disguised as Striker, rescues him. How the heck does he still wind up at Weapon X? Mystique <laughs> wouldn't have knowledge of Weapon X program, but if she did, wouldn't she want to foil Striker's dastardly plans by destroying the program instead? The answer then, is amnesia bullets, guy. Then, Always amnesia bullets. Then, years later, when she's in the Weapon X facility, in the presence of Wolverine, she never acknowledges that or acknowledges what happened. The only yep. explanation I can think of is that maybe she knew about Weapon X and figured that was the only way for Wolverine to get his adamantium claws? Maybe she just got Wolverine to safety and instead of killing Striker, she just let him go, free to continue capturing mutants years later? I don't know. Seems like an oversight. That was yeah. that was just Striker <laughs> pretending to be Mystique pretending to be Striker. Oh, nice. Yeah. Double oh, inception. But yeah. speaking of that Wolverine scene, I think like the the epitome of how lazy this movie is, right? You get Wolverine as like a cameo and you, you just, okay, a scene of like Wolverine just like taking out dudes, like eviscerating dudes. Let's make that visually interesting. Let's do something with that. And nothing. Nothing. It's like he he gets out of that sequence and he's tearing shit up, but nothing is staged well. Nothing is choreographed well uh, compared to like the X2 mansion sequence, right? Where Wolverine is like a machine like he is just like taking out dudes left and right and it means something too right because he's protecting the kids um that sequence even pales in comparison to like uh, the long shot in x3 where brett ratner just has wolverine like going down a line and taking out dudes left and right at least that like you could see what's happening it's it's interesting it's very exciting even though that movie is kind of a mess the fact that, you know, Brian Singer can't make Wolverine interesting, the guy who, like, b- he built his entire franchise around, is astounding. Like, this movie just feels lazy to me. Um, and uh, I don't know. It just makes me sad and doesn't make me look forward to seeing uh, much else from it. Like, I can't, I can't think of any memorable sequences from it. Like, even the Quicksilver sequence, which we were talking about before. Um, okay, that was cool. It was cool that he um, somehow ended up at the house right at the moment it was going to explode uh, because plot reasons. Uh, but the whole sequence was also just kind of a retread of what we saw in Days of Future Past. Just in terms of, like, how it's constructed, it goes a little further. But not that much. Um, Simon Kingerberg, he had a, a great. He was talking with uh, Jeff Goldsmith on the uh, the, cre- uh, the Q and A podcast. Q and A podcast. Yeah, that that's a good talk if you want to hear about you know just making this movie. And he talks about his struggles like coming up with the script. But apparently that whole sequence was also like second unit directed too. So it's like not. Even, I can't even give Brian Singer credit for. <laughs> putting that sequence together like well you know he probably i'm sure gave a lot of creative guidance and stuff for that scene i'm sure previs and everything like he (laughs) told them what to do but at the same time yeah that 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 was disappointing to me i think the thing that basically turned me off of this movie entirely is that there's a scene which you guys talked about where Apocalypse is just dicking around designing (laughs) costumes that's my favorite part of the movie by the way dude Dude, you you came here to destroy humanity, not to be a costume. I came here no, to he, kick he, ass and design costumes. Yeah, and I'm all out of kicking ass. Is really what I oh, man. destroy huma- humanity and look good doing it. What a waste of Oscar Isaac, and not just the people are complaining about the costume, which I guess is bad, but. Even with that costume, you could do something interesting with Oscar Isaac. And this movie is just not interested in that. It's just it wants to get to the next plot point so we can move on and have the X-Men fight the big bad villain in in yet another. Yeah. Laser is fighting, you know, the big evil thing uh, finale. Um, Yeah. So much, guys. Are you calling so, so me yet? Are you calling me yet? So much to disappoint me. <laughs> no, this movie, this movie is not good. It's it's a TLDR. 
I, I hated this movie. <laughs> I just wanted to say one last thing. Uh, yeah. I want to finish this email from Matt C. Writes in slash gmail.com. Uh, Towards the end of the Weapon X sequence, Jean Grey puts her hands on Wolverine's temples and reads his mind. <laughs> Despite the events of Days of Future Past, Wolverine has maintained all of his memories of past and future events. Yes. That being the case, Jean would probably see all the events of the other X-Men films. She would see the past and a possible really dark future. She'd see the end of the world, the death of Xavier. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this would have been a really strong emotional moment for her character. Mm -hmm. The weight of all that knowledge is so extreme, and it would be something that would continually shape that character going forward. I guess maybe Wolverine's memory is altered during Weapon X transformation, leaving Gene nothing but a blank slate to read. Just seems like a missed opportunity. Um, Many, many missed opportunities. Like, if Apocalypse is going around collecting the strongest mutants in the world... um they're a couple in his team. I probably would not choose because they're just boring <laughs> as fuck. Um, and meanwhile, you have Jean Grey just sitting there with her Phoenix powers and like, okay, we're going we're gonna to set up that plot line again because Brian Singer did that next too and he, he didn't get to do anything with it. So, okay, I'm fine with that. But if this whole movie was like a struggle for like saving Jean Grey, I think it would have been a lot more. If it was Apocalypse, you know, sensing her power and her strength and wanting to like use her to destroy the world in some way, that would have been a lot more interesting. Um, final thing I want to mention this movie. So in the last act, Magneto is creating a worldwide terrorist event, right? Cities are crumbling. Bridges are like, you know, you know, kind of like almost falling apart. Um, you could assume that caused trillions of dollars of damage, you know, like m- many, many people getting hurt because of all of that. Um, but once Magneto stops deciding to do it, uh, we just flash to the end of the movie and he's helping to fix the mansion and everything's all right. There, there, there is no there is nobody's like even like mad about or giving him shit for what he did, even though I'm sure that that caused problems for the entire planet. He was destroying the Earth. Um, yeah, this this movie just doesn't care about that sort of thing. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts, Devendra, and uh, I'm glad that this got to serve as a therapy session. Uh, and I'm sorry you couldn't join us for the review, but yeah, uh, now your thoughts are out there because there weren't quite enough negative reviews of uh, X Men Apocalypse <laughs> yet. But uh, <laughs> now, now it's on this podcast. I just want to. Uh, yeah, you got to go on the record. Got to yes. go on the record. It uh, is here. Because uh, all good yeah, points. I'm not even going to argue with yeah, any of this. There's no, uh, there's no argument think, for me. What, yeah, what's it, it was. Fine of us thought like, it was good. We didn't think it was good. We just were all like, "Yeah, all that stuff was bad about it, but it's still yeah. kind of okay." Yeah, yeah, yeah. all right. <laughs> the, the thing is, I think the X Men movies just mean a lot more to me because, like, right. we saw Brian Singer like uh, bring on this new, uh, you know, generation of superhero movies, like Dark Knight, uh, the Marvel stuff. None of that would have been possible without X One and X Two. And somehow, after, you know, 16 years, he's made a movie that is equivalent to, like, the Joel Schumacher era of superhero movies. And that's tremendously sad to me. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the Slash Filmcast After Dark. And we'll see you guys next week.